Ken, I'm really excited for our guest today on The Modern White Man, the podcast where we discuss how to be a modern white man who is anti-racist, anti-sexist, and understands his role in creating equity. I'm pumped because our guest today is Dante Curtis. He and I go way back, and we've even co-facilitated several workshops centered around white supremacy culture and burnout. The one word I would use to describe Dante although there's many words to describe him, is engaging. He just draws you in with his high energy, enthusiasm, and he's just got this bias towards action. I just love it. You know, this approach is critical, especially when you're talking about topics such as racism, white supremacy, and equity. And let me be clear, he doesn't make learning about these topics fun, per se, although you'll find yourself having fun throughout it, because there's nothing fun about them, obviously. What I feel he does so well is lower people's defenses and calls us in to take meaningful action towards anti-racism and equity work. And that's really tough to do. So Donna Curtis is the owner of Catcher Dream Consulting, where he inspires and trains individuals and teams nationwide on leadership, racial equity, anti-racism, and making practical change. Dante brings his 14 years of facilitation and speaking experience with an expectation of getting you energized taking practical action, and finding hope for a better tomorrow. He's currently a co-chair on the board of directors at Social Enterprise Alliance MSP, where he supports the purpose-driven economy. Dante lives a life that is dedicated to leadership, social justice, and liberation, and is probably one of the most energetic people you'll ever meet. He resides in St. Paul, Minnesota, with his wife Rachel and two dogs, King and Moose. So to no one's surprise, Dante brought that same energy to our conversation with him. I don't know about you, but this was exactly what I needed to feel recharged and recommitted to being an equitable leader. Yeah, I totally agree. That's a perfect intro, particularly the point of it really is difficult to get people to open up to these topics, white people in particular, to really have these tough conversations And Dante is so engaging that he really lowers those defenses. You can tell to be able to do that, to just get a foot in the door for folks to open up even a little bit, to be able to have these conversations, it's not easy to do. And it's such a gift to be able to do that, to really make progress. And I feel like Dante just really put that on display, you know, and the word white supremacy is probably the the two biggest trigger words i think in this work for white people like people Mm -hmm. white people just shut down so much with white supremacy and how he talked about his approach with that and his workshop white supremacy culture and and how he leverages culture to open it up the doors and it was just really very again kind of unique and refreshing way that makes people even be able to talk about white supremacy of all things and that's like the number one thing that that word it's just a trigger for people like inside Mm -hmm. it's like a little twang so for him to be able to like crack that nut is very um, impactful I think that you all are really going to pick up on that as well and really take a lot away from this conversation. Yeah, he talked a lot about persuasion. You know, he's really good at persuading people, right, with his energy and his presence and his way of connecting with people. And I think that's something I really encourage our listeners to pay attention to, because as white men, we talk about in the episode, we just kind of have by default that power of persuasion because of our identity. So, So how can we take advantage of that? How can we leverage that? And how can we understand the importance of persuasion? 
And how do we get ourselves in the room, right, to persuade the folks that need to be persuaded to take this work seriously in our communities and our workplaces? So, so book them, everybody. You can find out more about Dante Curtis and his work at catchyourdreamconsulting.com. You can get them for keynotes, workshop, facilitation, coaching. I can't recommend it enough. And as, as always, please reach out to us with questions, thoughts, feedback, or if you have an idea for a topic or a guest, you can email us directly at themodernwhiteman at gmail.com, or you can go to our website, themodernwhiteman.com. Well, let's not keep y'all waiting any longer. Here is our conversation with Dante Curtis. So we are excited to be joined by Dante Curtis. Dante, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, friends. Absolutely. We laid out your impressive bio and all of your accomplishments at the beginning of the show. And I have to say, I'm sorry we didn't have any Beyonce playing when you hopped on. Because I know that's your thing. But I feel like we'll still have a great conversation uh, regardless. Now, some may describe you as like a motivational speaker. And I know you've had some really amazing mentors in your life who have helped you hone your craft as a speaker. But you do so much more than that, as we laid out earlier, workshops, coaching, facilitation. It really shows how there are so many different ways to approach anti-racism work, and it takes a multifaceted approach. It's really incredible to have been able to watch you grow your business and make such an impact on so many lives. So can you start out by telling us a little bit about your journey? You know, what prompted you to start your business and who are some of the people in your life who influenced you along the way? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so thank you all so much. Uh, so happy to be here. And, you know, for, for me, uh, I have to start with my mom, right? Like, you know, I, I didn't realize growing up, but like my mom is like, or is a community activist, right? So, you know, I remember growing up doing community cleanups and she ran a nonprofit around affordable housing. And, you know, we were, we drove to Austin, uh, which is the capital of Texas to go in and, you know, go in on um, protests and, and meet with our legislation and meet with our legislators there. You know, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee was always in our community having meetings with us, having school board meetings. Like I grew up in that. My mother even ran for city council uh, when I was younger. And so like, I didn't realize, like she never referred to herself as a community activist. Like we didn't really talk in that language, but like, that's what she was doing. Uh, and so I have to start just with my mom because she laid the foundation for, for community work uh, for me. And then moving to Minnesota in 2011, uh, I would say the next person on the list uh, is one of my good friends, Dave Newell. He was a facilitator along with Amy Pearson of the Serving Leadership Program. And it was there where I really got to hone in on my own awareness and my own leadership skills and, you know, my own understanding of leadership. And um, and so Dave Newell will be the second one. And the third one who is directly responsible for me doing diversity and inclusion work. Her name is Pearl Leonard Rock. Uh, we affectionately call her P-Rock. And she, one day in September of 2014, asked me to facilitate a diversity and inclusion workshop for first year students for the whole semester. And like, this was my first introduction, like diversity and inclusion facilitation. I had never done it before. Nobody had ever asked me to do it before, but she was like, you are going to be one of the 10 students who, who I, who I handpicked to do this. And from there, like the rest is history. So that's kind of where it started for me. You know, someone's seeing this in me before I saw it in myself. And so, you know, from there, I moved back to Houston, 
came back to Minnesota. I did an America program called Public Allies. And then I kind of leaned into some of that leadership stuff um, that I learned in the Serving Leadership Program, which was really around, you know, taking your passions, taking what the world needs and taking what you're really good at and kind of finding that center. Like, I really take that seriously. And so I was like, well, well, what can I do? you know, to, to, you know, to, for my career, like, cause, cause working wasn't really working for me. Uh, and if you know me, as you probably will find out soon, you know, doing the, doing the next few minutes here that like working traditional jobs just ain't for me. And so I was like, what can I do? And I was like, well, I'm kind of good at speaking. I always got in trouble growing up uh, for talking too much in class. Yes. It's, it's all my, all my report cards say Dante is a good student, but he talked too much. He talked too much. He talked too much. And, you know, and so I was like, okay, I'm good at talking. And, and then, of course, I'm really passionate about diversity and inclusion issues, I'm, but more so about education um, and really educating and, and influencing. And then, of course, the world needs a lot of that right now. And so I was like, what can I do? We can we can start this thing up. Uh, and so that's kind of how, how it started five years ago in 20 in 2017 is when I when I personally uh, started Catch Your Dream Consulting. Well, Dante, you and I are fellow talk way too much in school. That was always my uh, parent teacher uh, conferences. He's a, you know, he's a good kid, just talks way too much. And look at now you're facilitating workshops. I've got a podcast with Paul. We're just like using our gift for the gab here for, yeah. for good, good reasons, hopefully. Yeah. But, but like nobody told me that it was like, nobody told me it was a gift, right? Like, like I always got in trouble. It was, it was, it was always a negative association. Right. Nobody told me that I could stand in front of a room of a thousand, two thousand people and, and, and do this professionally. And and now like it's it's amazing. You know, one of my favorite uh motivational speakers is Les Brown. You know, he's like 75 now, still going. Uh still still his young, energetic, laughable self. Uh and still I think one of the best. You know, he uh, I was listening to him uh probably about a year ago and he was talking about how our world has become more technology, more te- technological advanced, you know, robots and, you know, people are starting to do AI, but he was like this, he said, researchers have shown that you can't replace that personal sounding person in front of that room. Right. So can you imagine a robot giving a keynote? Like, like it just won't be the same. Right. And so uh, there's always be needs for people who can inspire and change in our world. So we're, you're in good company. I like the way of looking at that. We've got job security is what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, like, <laughs> job security, right. Yeah. yeah. Like, you're not going to be inspired by a robot, right? Like, That's right. Like, yeah. Like, you know, you know, Ken goes over there, you know, like, yeah. that ain't going to happen, you know. That's not going to work. Yeah. yeah. robot can't be charismatic and, and, and can't be, uh, you know, can't, you know, can't have the emotion, alliteration. Maybe someday, uh, you know, all, the, all this technology, I'm sure somebody will find a way to do it, but. Uh, this ain't the target self the, uh, the target self checkout. Like you ain't replacing this yet. That's right. That's right. Well, and Dante, with your experiences now, having done how many ever workshops, tons of workshops and speaking engagements, and you know, with your workshops, one of the most popular offerings that you have is on dismantling white supremacy culture. And Paul and I have talked a lot about that concept on this podcast, but we'd love to get your definition of what it is and what approaches you take to, first of all, get people to open up and talk about it. Because we've seen that, you know, my experiences personally with white folks that white supremacy, just those two words are a huge trigger for folks and kind of become defensive and shut down. So how do you get them to open up and talk about it? And second, 
to do something about it. And with that, what have you seen that are successful approaches to be able to, to talk about such a complex topic? Yeah, so uh, you are right that uh, Breaking the Cycle is is by far my most requested and, and favorite workshop to do. Uh, you know, for me, what I have found useful um, is really breaking the word down, right? Really breaking it down. And and I do this, and me and Paul have done this together um, in workshops where where I, I break down the word white supremacy and culture and, and pull it apart. And, and then we put it back together, right? But in breaking it down, you know, what I have found in my experience through doing this workshop now, too many times we didn't even keep count, like you are very right that people get defensive and, and not just defensive, but people distance themselves from white supremacy, right? They, it, it, you know, I, I asked people during the workshop to go into groups and, you know, talk about the word white and talk about the word supremacy and, 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 you know, and that, that's, those are the directions I give and time and time again, I see people, not just people, but groups of folks, you know, kind of distance themselves from it. Right. So, so they will talk about the word white, you know, in the, in the, in the third person, like, oh, it's, you know, it's about purity, you know, it's about, you know, um, uh, generic or, you know, plan, no seasoning, your food, like it's a, the default. Right. But, but like, they talk about it like as if it's something else outside of themselves. And then they do the same thing with supremacy. And and, and, and most of it, most of the stuff in supremacy is really, really negative. You know, sometimes I ask like, what well, groups come up? People say things like the KKK or QAnon or the Proud Boys. Like no, like no one talks about like, you know, Serena Williams as being supreme, right? Like like she's like, like the best freaking tennis player in the world. And like, we don't talk about her in that way. And so it has a negative connotation, but something magical happens when we get to culture. Oh, so, like it is, it, it never fails that, that people put personal pronouns in the culture, right? People will say things like, it's the water we swim in. It's our values. It's our music. It's, you know, it, it, it's the way that we do things like, and, and, and like, it's a small thing, but people do that without me again, same directions I give, but the culture people associate with culture. And so what I do is I hyper-focus in on the word culture because what that tells me is that, one, I don't have to work as hard to get you to see that you do culture, right? I don't have to get you, I don't get, I don't have to work so hard to get you to see that you understand culture, which is important because part of why people get defensive and maybe why we don't understand what it is, is because like, we, like, we don't talk about it in a very nuanced way. And so when we, when we get to, when we start talking about culture, we break that thing down and we talk about what culture is, big culture, as in, you know, American culture, United States culture, Eastern culture, Western culture, but also like there's a culture in your neighborhood. There's a culture in a city, right? That we, we're, you know, we're based in Minnesota. We talk about Minnesota nights. That's a culture. People get, you know, organizations, there's an organizational culture, right? People, people have degrees in this stuff. We get culture. And so what I do is, is because we understand culture. And 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 it, and it for me it unifies us in a way that white supremacy doesn't because white supremacy is all about division and all about dividing us and about separating us hierarchy dehumanization that's what white supremacy does but culture unites us and so I oftentimes will tell people in the workshop that this is a all of us problem because culture is not culture doesn't care about your race or your religion it doesn't care about your sexual orientation it doesn't care about your, how much money you have or what side of the tracks you grew up. It doesn't, it, culture doesn't care about that. 
an example that I give is when I moved to Minnesota, I started saying the word buddy. Now, 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 now I'm from Texas. We don't use the word buddy in Texas like that. But man, when I start when I moved to Texas, I mean when I moved to Minnesota, it was like I was like, why am I calling everybody buddy? Buddy this, buddy that, buddy, what's up, buddy? Hey, buddy. Why? Because it's the culture in Minnesota. But 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 it but it didn't matter that I came from Texas. It also doesn't matter that I'm a black man. Like the culture kind of socialized me into doing this in the same way. White supremacy does the same thing. And so it's it's an all of us problem. And therefore all of us have a part of the solution. And so that's how I bring so when you so when you when you ask the question, like how do I get people to open up and talk about this thing? Like that's a softer way to join the conversation than you're all white supremacists and you're all racist and white people are bad. No, like as a as a black man, I can do white supremacy. Now the motivations might be different, the reasoning might be different. We're I'm I'm trying to survive while you are thriving as, as white folks, but like we're still doing white supremacy. And so I have to do my work just like you need to do your work. And so it's not me versus you, us versus them. There's only us. There's only us. And so um that's how I enter the conversation and get people to lower that defensiveness. Because we're not here to bash white people. I know plenty of black and brown people who acquiesce to white supremacy all the time. And, and, and that's just as much of a problem as it is as white people doing it. I believe that. Uh, and I actually think it's actually more hurtful, if I'm being real. Because when I see a black woman or a black man or, you know, when I see the attorney general in the Brennan Taylor case who was a black man and not doing what he was supposed to do in that, in that, in in, um, in that situation, like that hurts me a little more. Then when a white person do it, I'm like, oh yeah, white people, I know you, I know y'all doing it. But like I've been looking at like you a black man, you should know this. And it just hurts me a little more. So that's how I kind of again bring people into the conversation, bring people in, let them lower their defenses, and 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 have this sense of we all got work to do. We don't have time to point fingers in this. It's affecting all of us. Yeah, I love that. Being able to lower the defensiveness is so important with engaging with folks. And also, I like how that engages storytelling. It's something that Paul and I have talked about more and realized the importance of storytelling and allowing people to tell their own stories, validating other stories. And I feel like culture is a really good way for people to be like, oh, yeah, you know, this is this is what I think is my culture or, or it's like energizing to bring them in. And, and so I love that. And then, Don, did you then... Once people are opened up and like have some energy and stuff, do you then like go into white supremacy more? I mean, like, okay, so like this is how white supremacy fits into that culture. Or how does, how do you like then? Cause I'm sure at some point it's like, okay, we do have to actually define or talk about white supremacy. So is that the segue then? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We, we kind of, we kind of go through culture. We, we talk about how culture works. We talk about how people are socializing the culture. Like, how is it? that I got to Minnesota and started using the word buddy. Like, how does that happen? How is it that people who grew up in Texas or or spend time in Texas use the word y'all, right? How is it that I know that in an interview that I'm supposed to dress a certain way, that I'm supposed to have a firm handshake, that I'm supposed to make eye contact with the person? How did I learn that? So we talk about that and we talk about how this process works and it's through a framework called the cycle of socialization. And then, of course, then after we do some more, some teaching, then we get into actually talking about how white supremacy culture shows up. And by the time we get there, people are like, oh, I get this now. Like, right. Because if we, because again, in my experience, if we start there, people are like, white supremacy, like, I don't have that in me. Right. But the reality is everybody has been socialized. Right. So 
it's not like, oh, we're not like looking around saying, oh, do you have that? Do you have that? Like now it's like, oh, yeah, I've been socialized around perfectionism. I've been socialized around um, worshiping the word. I've been socialized around individualism. Let's tell some of those stories and, and, and how this showing up in your growing up. How is it showing up in your professional life? Um, and then for me, the important part is how are we going to break that cycle? Right. We know we've been doing it and that's cool. But but what are we going to do to change those behaviors and those actions? Because that's really what culture is about. Culture isn't isn't like a one time thing. Culture is, is a repetition. It's a, it's a habit. It's habitual. And so we, we really have to understand that, like, it's not you doing something one time. This, this comes up a lot where people, you know, people will say, oh, man, like perfectionism, per- perfectionism is on the list. Like, I claim to be a perfectionist. And I'm like, OK, that's great. That don't mean you're a white supremacist, though. Right. Like that doesn't mean like that, that's not what that means, but it's the repetition. It's the continuation of it. Oftentimes when, when we talk about the word supremacy, people will talk about this zero sumness, this, 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 this lack of flexibility. Right. And for me, that makes a lot of sense, because when we look at the history of white folks in this country, like there has not been flexibility. Right. Either you were either you were white or you were not human. There was no in between. <laughs> Literally, there was no one. There was no in between. You know what? Either you were a citizen of, of the of, of the United States or you weren't, right? Either you were on the journey of manifest destiny or we were going to commit genocide against you. There was no in between. <laughs> like sometimes I have to tell people that like just because you do something one, like it's not a one time thing. Like it, it's not it's not a zero sum like that. It, we have to. So anyway, it, it, it gets complex a little bit. Uh, but I think getting people to that place around. We need to actually identify how this stuff shows up, like in everyday life. Because I can tell you, sometimes it, people would be like, like if I was to say what white supremacy is, you know, and ask five people, I would get five different answers. And like for me, that's frustrating because if you can't define it, we're never going to be able to fix it. So we really have to spend some time building up our our intelligence and our frameworks around this, so that people can start to identify with how this shows up personally before we do any other work. You know, obviously our mission is really to bring more white men into this work. So clearly the approaches you take are just really helpful for us to hear. And I think the other thing we've talked a lot about, sort of a strategy, if you want to call it, is defining how white supremacy actually harms white folks too. And, you know, that's what you and I have done workshops on and how we've kind of made the case that, you know, white supremacy is the culprit for burnout. Uh Uh-huh. So what what else have you talked about in workshops about how it's harmful for everyone? How does how is it a you know I think that's a great way to bring everyone in to say this this you've kind of mentioned before it doesn't discriminate right it clearly it it, it disproportionately affects non-white mm-hmm. folks that's obvious but but it does harm everyone. What else have you talked about in that, in that yeah, sense? Yeah, you know I look at one of our topics right now that is heavy and has been heavy since you know since Black Lives Matter has started its movement doing the killing of Trayvon Martin back in 2013, 2011, 2013, 20, 2014. Like it's been a while now. The media will really push the narratives that police are only killing black people. The reality is that police are also killing white people, <laughs> right? Like, like, like white supremacy just ain't harming black and brown people. I, I saw a video of a, of a, of a, of a police. Uh, I think this was in Arizona. And y'all, I was in tears because these police officers got a call one night and said they heard noise in this apartment. The police officer shows up and knocks on the door and hears some screaming. 
and the guy comes to the door. The police officer tells him to come outside. He has a remote control in his hand because they are inside playing Crash Bandicoot together. Y'all, they playing a PlayStation 2, right? Like having fun with his with his fiance or his girlfriend, his partner at the time. And the police officer shoot this dude. Now, if this was a black person, Black Lives Matter would have been all on it. However, this was a white person. And, and I remember watching this for the first time. It was probably about a year and a half ago, right after the murder of Floyd is when I watched this. And I was in tears. And that was the moment where I was like, yeah, like this just ain't a black and brown issue. <laughs> like this is hurting all of us in a real way. You know, and so for me, that's one example that I talk about. But it's complicated because we talk about the eels and the injustices of black and brown people. But for white folks, it's not necessarily, it's not a harm as much as, I mean, I mean, it is harmful. But like the harms aren't going to look the same, right? So, so for example, like you not allowing black, like black and brown people being being discriminated against and getting felonies is actually hurting white people because white people own, you know, a lot of rental properties. So, like again, it's not like like harming, like it's not like a life or death situation, but it is harming the bottom line of landlords in a way. You know, like again, I think we have to be a little more nuanced in our conversation, right? Because again, we know that this, that, that our society in the U.S. is set up for white people. Like we, it can't be a one-to-one ratio, like black people are dying, white people are dying. Like, like that's just not how that's going to work. In some cases that, that happened, but maybe white people aren't being able to live up to their full potential in a way or, or get as much as they probably would get or but in some ways, it's also, you know, as we talked about, Paul, it actually does harm white people. You know, we talked about burnout and, and how burnout is a symptom of stress, chronic stress that is, and like that can harm white people too. You know, I think about one of the ways of how white supremacy shows up is, is sense of urgency. Like, sure, we know sense of urgency can harm black and brown people, but if white people operate in sense of urgency, it's also causing them stress and causing them burnout. Like that's stressful. Like you got a family, you got kids, like you don't need to be operating in that sense of urgency either. Uh, so it can also harm in that way too. One of your other workshops, and I haven't been a part of it. I would love to check it out sometime is unleashing your inner activist. Huh. I really love that you address the topic because I feel like a lot of people think that being an activist means like grabbing the megaphone, marching in the streets, like protesting. And of course that's a really critical form of activism, but for many of us, you know, maybe they can't do things like that because of other commitments or physical limitations, or it just doesn't maybe fit their skill set, right? Mm-hmm. So we know that there's so many other ways to dismantle white supremacy. So what do you tell folks about how they can discover their inner activist? Yeah, you know, for me, this is huge because I, I, I tell people all the time, like, you will never, ever see me blocking any freeway ever. <laughs> like, like that's just not like that's just not that's just not what I'm gonna be doing. And, and and there's actually some if you listen close enough, there's there's a little bit of tension. Like there there's a little bit of I, I'm on 94, like I'm on 35, shutting stuff down. Like what are you doing, right? Like and again, that doesn't help anybody either. Um, and so this workshop came out of that kind of conversation for me because I was like, well, what if you vote, <laughs> right? Like like what if you are educator and you are very intentional about um, speaking up for diversity and inclusion, you know, other than Black History Month in your school? You know, what if you are somebody who, you know, has the company credit card 
and, and when it's time for lunches for the whole organization, you prioritize black and brown businesses over white businesses. Y'all, that's activism. And 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 I think that like, you know, we have to see that like activism is much more, like you said, Paul, than just marching and shouting and yelling. You know, uh, MLK very famously said that riots are the voices of the unheard. Right. In other words, if you hear me, I don't have to write. I don't have to I don't have to be loud. The thing is, is that, you know, sometimes people hearing you is hard sometimes. One of my favorite things to talk about is football. I love football. I, I know that might be shocking because the work I do, but like I love football. Go Eagles. I'm a huge Philadelphia Eagles fan. I don't know why. I'm, I have no connection to Philadelphia, but I love Philadelphia. Pro- well, the reason why is because Dunn McNabb. I was, was going to say Dunn yeah, McNabb. I was, was going to say Dunn McNabb was well, like the only black quarterback during that era. And so I was like, oh, he cool. He any run around. I like I like running around. I'm like, this is great. So that's why I started being an Eagles fan. But one of one of the examples of activism for me is the Washington football team, now known as the Commanders. We know what their name used to be, right? And so I want you to think about this, that people were activating, people were in the streets, they were showing up to games, and nothing changed. You know what got them to change that name? Oh, <laughs> what got them to change the name was the fact that their stadium sponsor, FedEx, because they play at FedEx Field, said that we are going to take away our sponsorship. We're talking millions of dollars, friends. We're going to take away your sponsorship if you don't change your name. Nike said that we are going to stop selling your products on our Nike store if you don't change your name. Y'all know what happened? Not not three months, five months, six months. No, it happened quickly. It happened so fast that they didn't even have a new name. But see, again, that's a form of activism that we don't talk about. Economic withdrawal. I mean, that's that's what the Montgomery Bus Boycott was all about. Again, you can be an activist in so many different ways than just marching and shouting. And and we need that. We need people to activate wherever you are. And, and you know, and, and, and I'll say one last thing. Is that particular training, Paul, what I love about it? Uh, you should come to it one day. It's, 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 it's a good time. It's all about leadership, much different than my other stuff. What I do is, is I, I lay over serving leadership principles based upon civil rights activists. Ones that are lesser known, not the MLK and the, and the Malcolm X's. Like you're Fenley Hamers, you're John Lewis's, uh, you're Ella Baker's, right? And and what we talk about is we talk about how those people activated outside of MLK. So again, we all know about MLK. We celebrate MLK Day. That's cool. But man, there was so much other stuff happening that like the civil rights movement would not have happened if it wasn't for your Huey P. Newtons, your John Lewis's, your uh, Bayard Westons, like all those people mattered and they were all activating. And so, you know, go activate, go do something. Like, I, I, tell, I don't care what you do, right? Like, like I think we get so fascinated with doing stuff, like just go do something. It's better than you doing nothing. I never thought about that MLK quote like that before ever. <laughs> like it's, it's so funny how you hear, you read a quote over and over again. He never, and then all of a sudden, like the way you talked about it, I never thought about that. And the immediate thing I thought of when you said it in that way is that people are listening to white men, right? Ken and I talk about it all the time that due to our privilege and power, due to our identity, people listen to us yes. over other people, right? Yes. So it doesn't mean that we shouldn't go out and protest. There's still a time and place for that. But it almost that almost speaks to me that like we should seek out places in which we can use our voices that aren't necessarily in the streets, right? Yeah. Am, am I interpreting that right? Yeah. You know, like, again, not that that's not important. It's definitely the time and a place, but but people hear us. People hear you. Right? 
and and there's opportunities for us to take advantage of that. Yeah. And so yeah, it it just really it, like gave me goosebumps when I when you said that because I was I have never thought about it in that way. Um, and it made so much more sense of what he's talking about. Yeah, you know, I, I totally agree. You know, one of the that, that's a great segue. One of the one of the um tenets of of serving leadership is persuasion. Again, something that we don't talk enough about, right? Because we're good at arguing, right? We're good at, you know, we're good at debating, but are we good at persuading people? Are we good at influence, right? And, and this is this is something that is critically important. And, and I love that it's a tenet of, of, of serving leadership because when I look at the history of change in this country, persuasion has been, if not the top tool, really, really close, right? Two examples for you. The first one is, is women's rights, right? Women had to be persuasive because women did not have the right to vote. Women had to go talk to men. <laughs> like, like I, I know it's messed up. Like, I'm a, I'm a hardcore feminist. I'm all about it. But, like, the reality is that women did not have the right to vote. Women had to go persuade, influence men to do that. And the reality is that if they did not do that, it wouldn't have happened. But then you go further in the history and you look at people like Thurgood Marshall. Like Thurgood, Mar- like Thurgood Marshall is like one of my like favorite people to think about and, and, and listen to. Besides the fact that he said that he talked about pulling yourself up, but pulling yourself up by your bootstraps when we don't have boots. He, that's when that's when it's called. But but like Thurgood Marshall had to go to an all white Supreme Court, <laughs> like all white, all white men, and literally persuade them in their house, in their language, on their rules. Right. The Supreme Court said you got to wear a tie to show up to the Supreme Court. You got to put on a tie. See, 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 for me, like people are always on about this. Right. I, I know some people who are like, I'm going to do whatever I want. Like it's 2022. I'm going to show up how I want to show up. OK, that's cool. But y'all, we're talking about influence and building rapport. If the Supreme Court said you can't come into Supreme Court, if you don't have a tie on and a, and a, and a suit jacket, you're not going to Supreme Court. I don't care who you is. So what you do? You show up in that way. And when he got there, he had to be persuasive. And so, of course, we know he used the most famous tests in, 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 in that place called the doll test um, to, to persuade them and say that this 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 separate but equal thing ain't working. Uh, and, of course, we know that that ended segregation. But, again, pop, the power influence has been here. Like, we have to use it. Uh, and as you said, Paul, yeah, white people got people's ears. Like, shout out to the rooftops, right? Like, it, it, it's why I work with white people a lot, when I, especially in Minnesota. Because I can say something and people are like, oh, well, he's just a he's just a black dude doing it. But like a white person says the same thing. And they're like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What? And again, again, I, I could be mad. I could be like, oh, man, why they don't listen to me? Racist. No, 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 no we're not doing that. We're going to play the game. Right? Like like we're humans. It's just, it's just how it is. Like let's get better at persuasion and influence. And I talk about this a lot because it's so important. And to your point, Paul, if you can be in the boardroom, you don't need to go ride nothing. <laughs> go to the boardroom. Go, go. You go. You go talk about how to move millions of dollars instead of just having you know going to buy you know lunch you know for forty people and spending four hundred dollars. Like go to the boardroom so you can talk about how to mill four million dollars. Like if I can't do that, but you can, show up, activate. Anyway, I'm huge on it. Huge. That's really got me thinking a lot about leadership and agency and leadership is something that we've talked a lot about on this podcast and you, you speaking to, you know, activating yourself, 
I really like this this idea that everybody has agency or the power to do something and and you know what they believe is right for equity to be anti-racist you know everybody can do something and so even if more granular you know for those who aren't able to step into boardrooms or don't have that quote unquote status or you know whatever it might be in this the dominant cultural narrative that we have what can white men do to think about their role in their agency yeah you know for me you might not have positional power. And, and, and I mean, just because there's only, you know, there's only one executive at a, you know, lead executive at a at an organization, right? There's only one, you know, lead financial person. Like, you may not be in, the, in those roles. We know that most people, most white men are in those roles, though. Like, so, so, like, so, 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 so and like, there's not like even like a theory. Like, we just, we have statistics that say like white people are still in power in you know in congress and our legislation you know even it, like we know that white people still have a lot of power in our society but if you don't your voice is so important right your endorsement is so important you may not have the position of power but like can you say hey like i support dante right or hey i support jason soul hey i support you know nakima like you might not have you know the clout but man you got a lot of friends and, and and the reality is, is that your friends probably got more money than my friends. And so and so for me, economic justice is is, is like at the forefront of racial justice. You can't you can't do anti-racism and you know keep upholding the powers of the status quo, right? You you can't do that. And so for me, like I tell people, like, let's just start where your money is, right? Cause because for me, like everybody spends money. Everybody, you know, we live in a capitalist society. And like that can really go a long way to you making an impact in our society. And we know that, you know, the enslavement of black people, the killing of native people, the um, the boarding of natives, all that is about money. Right. And so, like, you start spending your money differently. I mean, I, I would say that. Right. Even if it's a small things and, you know, in small amounts, like start giving, start, start contributing, you know, not donating. Let's be clear. You're not donating to black and brown people. Like you're, you're contributing, you're investing, you're, you're redistributing wealth. Like, so you can do that. Uh, you know, every, every, every white man can do that. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I I'm trying to buy a house right now. And, I, and, and it's so funny that when we talked to, when we talked to um, our first real estate agent uh, years ago or about a year ago now, uh, one of the questions he asked is like, are you going to have relatives help you give you a down payment? And I remember I was like, "What now? What do what? <laughs> really? You go, you go like, is that a thing?" And he asked casually, like, "Oh, like people do this, right?" And so, like, you know, we we, we know that the, the you know the wealth of of white folks is like twenty two or twenty three times the wealth of black and brown people. So I guess that's something you can do, right? But uh, you know, so that for me, like, that's huge. So money redistributing your 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 money, endorsing black and brown people, right? That is so huge, right? Like saying, like, you know, I know I know this speaker. I know this person who does this. I know this person who does that. Like that is so important, you know, in, in being anti-racist. And then I guess the last thing, I love to do things in threes. The last thing would be that if it's possible for you to to share some of your leadership, right? And share some of your some of your power, right? Like I'm not asking, uh, this is just me personally, like I'm not asking white men to, to move out the way. I, I personally don't think that's necessarily the answer. That's just, that's just me, me personally, right? Like this is these are my thoughts, because again, we have seen that like we need 
white men. We need white folks to, 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 again, you can say things, you can do things, you can be in places. Like, like you don't have to work as hard. Like, if you don't have to work as hard to get stuff, you also shouldn't have to work as hard to get justice and endeavor and, you know, equity. So, I mean, you know, you can share some of your power too. Even one example that jumped into mind earlier is when you were talking about when you had an idea and you weren't listened to, and then a white guy said essentially the same thing. And they're like, oh, that's a great idea. I've, I've seen that, you know, happen myself with like my idea being validated when someone else said it, but it wasn't really looked at or considered or, or, or what have you. And for me, like what I always try to do is be like, that's not, that wasn't my idea. That was said by, you know, this person earlier. If I'm in a meeting and I had a meeting with a group of women, BIPOC colleagues, whatever it is, I always try to give credit where the credit is due. If I say something and they're like, oh, Ken, you know, always coming with great ideas or whatever. It's like, no, that actually came from the team. You know, that was right. this, per this person, this person, and this person. And that just was one, one small way that I always try to personally work on that I thought of with your example. Like I was like, oh, I hope that that white guy who said your idea was like, no, actually that was Dante's idea. You know, I was just hoping for that because that's a, that happens all the time. And I feel like that's a really big way to, to really use your agency. You know, and, 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 and again, like, like, you know, something that I've been doing a lot of thinking about is, is I think that like people want this one intense thing they can do that's going to like, that's going to like change anti-racism work forever. And what I have found is that's not at all how, first of all, that's not how culture works. And that's not how anti-racism work work. Like to think of this work as being anti-racist as you working out. Any of y'all work out? Any of y'all work out on a regular basis? You look like you work out, Paul. I see those muscles. You look like you do. Uh, I, I can't do that. I, I so, so, so I've been working out now for five months. I have not missed a workout in five months. And I say that because consistency is important. But I have a trainer who sometimes will come work out with me. He writes my workout plans for me, and sometimes we work out together. And what's important to know is that when we first started working together, he didn't start me on the big weights because I would have hurt myself, right? He started me on the on the on the 10s and the 15s, right? And and we sat there for a little bit, right? It wasn't like oh I did 10 this week and now I'm gonna do 15 next week. Nah, like it was sometimes two three weeks of doing 10. Sometimes increasing the reps from 12 to 14 to 15 to 16 reps, but it was still 10 pounds. And, and we're so infatuated with wanting to get to the 50 pounds and the 60 pounds and 70 pounds weights, and you're going to hurt yourself. And, and the reality is that that's, you know, you get stronger by your consistency of going to the gym, not you going to the gym one day on Monday for eight hours a day. Like you're not going to ever get stronger, right? Now, for those of who don't work out, because I, I I hate guilt tripping people into working out, because I know sometimes people get all, you know, oh, I mean, you're not working out, are you trying to brag? Okay, okay, this is for you. You don't brush your teeth one day on Monday for eight hours a day and just say my teeth are clean. Like the dentist can actually tell if you don't brush your teeth on a consistent basis. So if you want healthy teeth, you need to brush your teeth for just three minutes a day, every single day. See, it's the small stuff that makes a major difference. The, the dentist can actually tell, like, like legitimately, you can Google this. The dentist can, you know, you know, and I, and I, I don't know, I don't know if y'all have done this, but I have done this, 
where like before you go to the dentist, you like scrub your teeth really fast. You're like, ah, you like brush, you like, you like put the rocks out in there. You like put the, you like, you like go get the, 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 uh, the Listerine stuff. You're like, ah, you like trying to, like, you, I mean, you go to the dentist, like my teeth gonna be clean. And you know what the dentist will say? Hey, Dante, you haven't been brushing your teeth. Whoa, what you mean? Right. And that's what happens in our diversity inclusion work sometimes, man, is, is, is that people will show up to that one thing and say, I'm doing my stuff. You ain't been doing no anti-racism work. I can tell, right? Like you, you just tried to brush your teeth for eight hours right now before you came to see this, but you ain't been doing no diversity inclusion work. It's the small things, right? It's you giving credit what credit is due to bond of black folks, because now you're going to see me as more credible. When we talk about hiring people, when we talk about promotions, people want to have people who are credible. Like there's a reason why white people are at the top of places because they are seen as more credible. Yeah, Dante Curtis said that. Ella Baker said that. Barack Obama said that. <laughs> like, like John Lewis said that, right? Like, and I, just one thing about giving credit. I quote a lot of black and brown people in trainings. I, I made a mission to not quote white people in my trainings ever, okay? Which is really hard. <laughs> but, but part of this is that I do a lot of research on quotes. And can I tell you how hard it is to find the original source of quotes sometimes? Because, but what happened is that once a white person said the quote, that quote get attributed to the white person, even if a black and brown person said it before. And so again, again, credit is huge. White people are really good about this too, because when you, when you're in school, all you doing are crediting people. So we know it matters so that we need to start making sure we're giving some credit to black and brown people. Huge thing you can do. I just love that dentist example, because it makes me think of like, when we think about performative allyship, mm. right? Like we only show up and we show up as our greatest selves as an ally when other people are looking or when there's that important person in the room or a lot of times when it's white folks, like when there's black and brown people in the room, like, oh, look at me. I'm such a great ally. Right. And we're, we're reading up on as many books as we can before we go to that gathering with other so we can quote Ibram X. Kendi and this and that. Right. But then the little things that we do, the, the little moments we miss out every day. Right. Um, and so I love that framing and it makes me think of so here's the irony and I, i'm sorry in advance but i'm going to quote a white dude right now oh, go ahead. but it, th what it made me think of was atomic habits i don't know if you've read that book he talks about the quote i love from that book is you we don't rise to the level of our goals we fall to the level of our systems, of our systems yeah. and it shows how much we need to be aware of the system of white supremacy and how how much it is, you know, how much we're swimming upstream, but that atomic habits is all about that person. Like you're talking about those small persistence with building habits and unlearning what we've learned and building new habits. And I, I think about that a lot with dismantling white supremacy. For me, it's about habits, yep. right? And maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but it's about how, do, how wow. am I undoing old habits and how am I creating new habits? And yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that, that was just really helpful for me to think about that. And it's, it made me realize the importance of those those little moments. And even when no one's, like we talk about integrity, it's like doing the right thing when no one's looking, right? So yeah, I, yeah, I want to end I want to end with the last question. I think it's a good way to end because it's about hope. Because, mm -hmm. you know, you, you say on your website that it's a really important part of everyone's journey to find hope. So here's what I'm going to quote. I'm going to quote a black man here, Dante Curtis. It is hope that inspires us to focus on what's possible rather than what's wrong. You know, I think we can all agree that this sounds easy on the surface, but it's so difficult when we are inundated with news stories and personal experiences that make it feel like 
we're just moving in the wrong direction in this world, right? So what do you do to remain hopeful when you envision a better future? What do you see? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, hope is so important. Uh, I am reminded of my favorite quote about hope comes from Brian Stevenson. And, and he says that hopelessness is the enemy of justice. And man, I, that, that, like that quote gets me every single time because like what it tells me, Paul and Ken, is that like you can have the right language, you can have the right the, the right, you know, the right mindset, you can have the right action, you can you can read all the books, but but if you don't believe that we're gonna get there, you're never gonna move. And so for me, what I do personally, one is this work. Like I am very fortunate that like my work that I do every single day brings me hope. Right. When I when I see people in workshops, you know, confessing as Dr. Kenny talks about and saying like I can do better, like that brings me hope. When I see people Telling me, Dante, like I, I didn't, I didn't quite get this white supremacy thing before this workshop, but but it makes a little more sense to me now. Like that brings me hope. Well, you know, for me, I read a lot. If you can't see by the, my my books, by my bookshelf back here, I do a lot of reading, and reading gives me a lot of hope because as I read, it, it brings me a spirit of we can be better, right? I, I read a lot of books. I read Atomic Habits, uh, and I actually read it through a lens of diversity and inclusion. Uh, which, which that's why when you talk about simplifying, I'm like, no, nah, that's all it is, his habits. Uh, and so I think reading really helps with me, you know, being among people who are hopeful, being around other people who are like not cynical. I know some people who are really cynical in this work. I know diversity and inclusion leaders, people who, tra- who trainers, who, who straight up tell you I'm cynical. And in my mind, I'd be like, why are you doing this training? But that's holding this story for a different day. You know, and so for me, it's about hanging around people who who are who have this this sense of possibility because you know when I look at history again friends you know those old Negro spirituals that that they were singing in those fields was about hope right singing we shall overcome was about hope right celebrating things like Kwanzaa it's about hope right and so hope is so important right community for me is what brings hope to this situation and um, I think I tend to be a very optimistic person but but it's not reckless optimism uh, as it is remaining hopeful so that we can keep moving. You know, and then I'll just say one more thing as I'm, as I'm reminded of a Dr. MLK quote where he says that if you can't fly, try running. And if you can't running, try walking. And if you can't walk, try crawling. But whatever you do, keep moving forward. Right. And for me, that's what this work is all about. You know, I don't, you know, some days I go to the gym and it's not that great workout, but going to the gym, you know, for 20 minutes and having a crappy workout is better than you doing nothing. And so that gives me hope. Also, results give me hope, too. When I see again, when I see people doing stuff, when I see people changing, when I see people, you know, confessing, when I see people right now acting steps they go do coming back to me months later and saying, I did that thing and this how it turned out, man, that gives me hope. Well, I can say with certainty that that you've gotten results with us. You've, you've changed us. You've inspired us. You've made us think you've challenged us. This is, this is a typical experience, a Dante Curtis experience and wouldn't expect anything less. And, you know, I said at the beginning in the intro, like you just find a way to take a subject like white supremacy, these really intense, dark topics, but somehow people find themselves having fun, right. Mm -hmm. And feeling good. Like, and that's, 
I think that's just a great way to distill down like your gift of doing this activism work that you can take something like that and, and people can feel engaged, but also feel challenged at the same time. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you, Dante. It was a pleasure as always. And uh, keep moving. Right. Yeah. Thank you, Dante. I do feel very energetic and hopeful right now. So I, I definitely feel that. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah. Thank you all, friends. It's been a joy. Yeah. Appreciate y'all. Well, to no one's surprise, we were blown away by Dante's energy, enthusiasm, bias towards action. I'm feeling inspired. I'm feeling ready to go and, you know, feeling hopeful too. And I, I just love how we ended up talking about hope. It's it's just such, I feel like it's a underappreciated part of activism. And it's something maybe, maybe more for me that's underappreciated, but, but I need to hear that more often. And so I feel like it's a great way to, to end the conversation. I agree. And, you know, hope is really so important. There are like themes that are coming up on our journey. And I feel like compassion has been a, a theme that's come up a lot. And I feel like hope is equally as important. And the way that Dante spoke to it really showed how important it is. And it's something that I always want to continue to remind myself and others in my life that I've heard this a lot. And this is straight white privilege. Like the privilege of white folks to be able to be like, this problem's just too big. Like it's, especially when you start really laying out all the different ways that white supremacy culture can exist, the dominant culture persists, all the different industries, you know, everything. It's like, ugh, you know what? It's just, it's too big of a problem. You even hear things like, it won't get fixed in my lifetime, right? And we said that, but like, that doesn't mean that you stop working on it, but to have hope of that it is possible to actually make things better. It is possible to eradicate racism, even if it doesn't happen tomorrow. Not even even if, it won't. It's a long, it needs to be a long-term thing, but to have hope that just the little things add up and we have to keep showing up every day, the little things, like going to the weight room every day, right? To have that hope versus the mentality of like, it's, too big of an issue like I, I'm just powerless to make any kind of difference is really empowering yep I mean so if you're flying keep flying if you're running keep running if you're walking keep walking if you're crawling keep crawling but I love I love his takeaway of just just keep moving again thanks to Dante for the great conversation for you all listeners please subscribe and rate this podcast those ratings really do go a long way to get the word out be much appreciated if you are enjoying it to give us a five-star rating i'll just say that yeah especially or, those five stars those yeah. are the ones that really help spread the word folks that that keeps us moving it that does. keeps us moving forward that keeps us running forward those five stars so i can't even tell you how much a five-star rating means <laughs> when we see a five-star <laughs> pop up it makes our week folks That's true so if <laughs> anything true. if you just want to make our week just yeah. uh Hit that five star for us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or for you visual folks out there, you can also go to our YouTube channel called, of course, The Modern White Man, where you can watch the full video conversation with our guests, including the excellent conversation with Dante. So again, thanks for listening, everybody. And always remember to keep learning, stay humble, and do the work. <laughs>